Hi, I'm Josh Packard, Executive Director of Springtide Research Institute. I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Ten years ago, everybody was talking about the next generation, the millennials. Now, I'm a millennial, which meant that everybody was talking about me. The catch was that most of what people said was negative, at least what I heard a lot of pastors say or writers say. It was bemoaning what was going to happen when this next generation, the selfish, lazy, entitled millennials, finally take over the world. Now, as people said those things about me, I swore to myself in that moment that I wouldn't do the same thing to the next generation. It's easy to look at younger people who, by the way, all tend to be a little bit selfish and entitled in general, probably true of every generation. Let's just talk about the fact that boomers were called the me generation in the 70s. But beyond that, I think it's important to understand people and to resist the temptation to judge them without that understanding. Dr. Josh Packard is a sociologist, and he is one of the leading researchers around Gen Z. He's the director of the Springtide Institute, which researches the inner and outer lives of 13 to 25-year-olds. And they're really great at giving actionable insights that will help you and me care for the next generation. This conversation was a treat. We had a wide-ranging discussion from Gen Z's political identity to their gender and sexual identities to their spirituality. And in many ways, I found that Dr. Packard challenged my assumptions, and I really enjoyed that because I like being told I'm wrong and learning in the process. I think you'll experience the exact same thing. So let's hop into the interview. Josh, it's great having you on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So here's the deal. I'm a millennial and you're Gen X. Is that correct? Oh, let's see. I'm 44 years old. So whatever that makes me, it's like right on the edge between, you know, how we normally define these things, Gen X or millennial, but right there. I'll make you an honorary geriatric millennial. How about that? Okay, there we go. <laughs> you're in the club. So tell me, what's the difference between millennials and Gen Z? Um, nothing. No. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm glad you're on the show. We'll close it up right here. You know, it's the weird thing. I think we think too much about generations as being distinct containers, as though there's something that is qualitatively different about being born in 1979 as opposed to being born in 1980. It's just not true. And part of what got us into that thinking was that the world was never as homogenous as we wanted to think that it was, but it was certainly once upon a time more homogenous than it is now. And so it was okay to think in broad strokes about the greatest generation or baby boomers or whatever, because you could sort of aim for the middle and capture, I don't know, 80% of the people you were talking about. So if you were saying for some, you know, young people's faith lives are X in 1970, you were going to capture a much bigger portion of the population than if you tried to say young people's faith lives are X now. Why is that? That is because 
Gen Z, what we would call starting around 12 or 13 or so and up to about 25 right now, this is the most diverse generation that's ever existed in the history of the world anywhere, period. And so now when you aim for the middle and you try to make some big, broad claim about Gen Z and say that they are a particular thing, maybe you capture 30% of the population. So like increasingly shooting for the middle gets you a minority share of what's actually going on in the world. At Springtide, what we really try to do is get people to think about not so much what is this generation, but what social trends are impacting this generation. And so when we start thinking that way, now we start picking up on some things that, of course, they were present with millennials, and maybe they exist here to a different degree or at a different magnitude. And almost certainly they were even present for Gen X. And they're here either you know, increasing or decreasing, but still present with Gen Z as well. So I think that's the better way to think about these things. But undoubtedly, it's the diversity issue, the reality of their diverse lives. That's probably the biggest qualitative difference between these generations. Yes, it's almost like which Gen Z are we talking about today? <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. And I find that really interesting because it does strike me as true, just anecdotally talking to people that Gen Z is more diverse. But I'm curious, is that diversity racial diversity? Is it ideological diversity? Define what kind of diversity we're talking about right now. Great. Yeah. Super question. So, you know, kids are still kids. Like teenagers still deal with the same kinds of things developmentally that kids deal with always. So I'm not sure if there's a whole lot of ideological diversity showing up with Gen Z because kids generally tend to be self-centered as their <laughs> brains are not fully developed. I mean, this is not me making a value claim about them. This is the nature of your brain development at 15. It's hard to think beyond yourself. They tend to be idealistic, and Gen Z is no different in this regard. They are very values-driven often and buck tradition. I mean, look, hating what your parents do is the basis for every rock and roll song in existence for all time. It's not, you know, this is not something unique to Gen Z. Yeah. So when we think about diversity, though, it really is all these demographic things. So the share of the population that is foreign born, that has increased to almost all time highs. The share of the population that identifies as white is that probably, I think, maybe an all time low since the United States has started. Gender and sexual diversity massively. So those are identities. These have increased dramatically in recent years. For the record, there's a real conversation to be had about whether or not the actual percentage of that population has changed as opposed to the percentage of the population that is willing to now identify that way because it's a safer place to do so. So that's the kind of diversity that we're talking about. And it's not felt evenly, right? Like our neighborhoods, the physical places that we occupy in this country are still really segregated especially by income, especially by race. And there's a lot of overlap between those two things. And so I think a lot of adults walk around in relatively homogenous worlds still, but online is a whole different story. And Gen Z's life online is wildly diverse in some really incredible ways. And there's a big disconnect there between often what the adults in their lives are perceiving and what then young people are perceiving because adults are not engaged. You know, if you look at studies about how adults engage in social media, they replicate their homogenous in-person lives online. It's echo chambers in person, echo chambers online, not particularly diverse. Gen Z is not engaging online. So there's not a monoculture online. Gen Z is not a monoculture. And so this is already a difficult conversation to have because the minute we start talking about generations, it's almost impossible not to paint with broad brushstrokes. And you brought up three different things in there I want to talk about. I want to talk about sexual diversity and identity diversity in terms of gender and sex. I'd also really like to talk about social media. But I want to start with something that I've heard you discuss multiple times, which is institutions. Now, I'm going to do some broad painting 
ranting, okay? So live with me on this. I'm breaking your rules. It seems to me that Gen X, generally speaking, has a kind of jaded, cynical attitude towards institutions. Millennials, my own generation, I wouldn't describe as quite as cynical as much as deconstructive. It seems like we see institutions as a problem to be dismantled. And so I'm curious, Gen Z, you said that they're also kind of an anti-institutional generation. Are they jaded? Are they cynical? Are they deconstructors? What are the trends? Well, it's really early to try and figure that out because of their age. I think that at best, the metaphor that we kept playing around with is that they really seem to be builders. And that does not mean that they're interested necessarily in building up the institutions that their parents or grandparents might have occupied, but that if something isn't working for them, maybe counter to the impulse to tear it down and deconstruct it, they're like, oh, we'll just build this other thing. We're going to make space that works for us. If the church won't let my friends in, then we'll go and make an online religious space that does work for us. That's actually a research project we're taking on right now. The thread, though, that you can pull on that runs through all of this is this steady, slow, but incontrovertible decline of institutional trust going all the way back to the late 1960s, early 1970s. And this is not just for Gen Z. This is every single generation. And it's not just religion. It's every single institution. In other words, like we've transformed American culture for better or worse, over the last 50, 60 years, from one that really trusted institutions to coordinate our lives, our education lives coordinated by educational institutions, religious lives by churches and mosques, synagogues, et cetera, and on and on. Government, we had high trust for all these things to a point now where, generally speaking, Americans don't trust institutions to do that work for them. And Gen Z is just the latest step in that trend that's been going on for a long time. So that's the thread that sort of runs throughout all those. Now they take different manifestations. Is it deconstructive? Is it disregard? Is it building up an alternative, et cetera? But it's the mistrust that matters. I have to say two things. First of all, it gives me great hope that the word you described as builders. One of my fears as a millennial is that our generational legacy is going to be rebel. And I love <laughs> millennials, you know, and it used to drive me nuts when Gen X and boomers would dog on millennials basically for being teenagers and in their early 20s. Like, oh, they don't work hard. They're all self-centered. I'm like, okay, in the 60s, they called you the me generation. So let's just be honest here. This is a developmental thing. This has nothing to do with generations. But I think there's something even bigger, which is historical. I mean, if you look at the 40s and 50s, that's the high watermark of institution building yeah. in the United States. That's when you have the highest amount of people who are self-identifying with denominations. So there's the religious element. It's also when you have, you know, the national broadcasting company, the American broadcasting company, yeah. you know, and you get to today, it's like Google didn't start off as the national internet index foundation. You know, even our institutions that we've built have this kind of inner criticism of themselves, not taking themselves too seriously. So I'm curious with Gen Z, what is their perception of institutional leaders in general? It's a really great question because I think a lot of people tend to see this as black and white. I'll give you an example. I was talking last summer to a group of Catholic leaders who are in charge of forming young folks. And so they were asking me this question that was something along the lines of, if they don't like us, or, you know, if they don't trust us, how do we get their trust back? And I was like, oh, hold on. It's really critical that we get this right. It's not that they don't like you. They nothing. <laughs> That's a huge difference. It is a huge difference. It's their parents that don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's where we've gotten, you know, it was similar to another church leader who asked me, you know, how do we get young people back to the church? I'm like, that's a really great question to ask in 2004. But in 2022, the question isn't back to church. The question is to church. So where we're at in terms of the evolution of this behavior is that we've got parents who don't trust institutions, including religious ones, now raising this generation of kids. I want to be clear. They're not like having 
meals and be like, you know, we don't trust institutions, Johnny. You got that right. <laughs> don't you dare go trust that church or that school or that. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not how this is happening. It's more about like, this is the culture that we live in and the air that we breathe. And it doesn't matter if you like or don't like church, we're still going because that's what we always do. Like that isn't happening anymore. And that message is filtering down to Gen Z. And so what we find with them when it comes to religious leaders is like, they don't care about the pastor, but they might really, really like Patrick. If you look at the data, that is pretty consistent across all institutions. People express massive distrust for politicians, but they love the politician they voted for. (laughs) Absolutely. They really don't trust public education, but they like their kid's school or their kid's teacher, to be more clear. Like those people still get rated pretty highly. This is pretty interesting. So you can walk through time and you can find a generation that says, we don't trust institutions, followed by a generation that says, let's tear down the institutions, followed by the generation that says, what are institutions? Why do I care about institutions? That's exactly right. And that's a huge shift. Yeah, I mean, it all comes back now to relationships. I mean, that's really the key central organ. I mean, religious institutions, I think, have been really slow to grasp onto this and understand the ramifications for how they maybe should be restructuring their ministries. But the quicker we can make that shift away from everything driving back to the institution towards everything driving towards relationships, that's where we start to win. Yeah, that's fantastic. What's the perception of political institutions? You know, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, political leaders. I have an easier time understanding people's perception of church leaders because it's in my experience. So, you know, when you describe how Gen Z sees me as a pastor, I'm like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I work with several people who are Gen Z. They're all fantastic people. They are builders, by the way. I'm glad you said that. I mean, it's fascinating to me looking at our Gen Z staff. Many of them, they see what we're doing. They're like, I want to make something like this. I want to build something. I want to be a part of something. And that's That's what's driving them. But again, back to the main question, what is their perception of political institutions? Well, I would say whoever's listening to this, think about the political party you support and Gen Z really likes that political party and hates the other one. No, I'm kidding. Man, that's easy. (laughs) (laughs) Done, right? The mistrust of political institutions and political leaders extends to Gen Z. I wouldn't necessarily characterize them as being more or less savvy about politics than you know, most teenagers throughout time with one critical difference. I think they're more knowledgeable. They're more knowledgeable about particular issues because their access to information is greater. They might not understand the sort of nuances about how all that works and plays out, but largely they see politicians and adults in particular as not caring about the same issues that they care about and certainly not to the same degree. Not reflective of young people's concerns like at all. I mean, they see themselves as just sort of absent from the national conversation. That's not surprising. Yeah. I mean, I think millennials experience the same thing at a similar age. But you said something interesting. A guy named Martin Gurry, who we've had on the podcast, wrote a book called Revolt of the Public. And in it, he talks about how in the information age, I mean, we have in one year, 2000, 2001, we doubled the amount of information that humans had created in human history. And then we did it again in 2002. We doubled the double. <laughs> and we've continued to do this throughout our history. And he talks about how this access to information is part of why we don't trust institutions, because now we've seen the lie. We see the way that the character of institutions, the bold and proclamatory statements they make that they don't live up to our expectations. And he's talking about Gen X and probably millennials. This leads to what he calls a nihilistic impulse, which is, again, this desire to tear down with no plan to rebuild. But you said, yeah, they have more information, which makes them more knowledgeable. And you think that's leading them to build? That's a really good question about what the connection there is. If the knowledge is leading towards building or if these things are just happening simultaneously. I'm not sure that there's a causal connection between those things or if they're just both attributes. Look, we are at Springtide really big believers in institutions. Our theory of change is that institutions matter 
but they don't change by themselves. People inside of them have to change them. The institutions we know scientifically tend towards stasis. That is, if you leave an institution alone, it will get more and more conservative. I don't mean in terms of its values. I mean more and more conservative in terms of the risks that it's willing to take. But we know from my field of sociology, we don't have examples in human history of long-term, sustained, coordinated human behavior that doesn't have an institution at the middle of it. You can talk about you know, these mindfulness apps all you want, and I think there's a lot of good in them, and they help a lot of people. But if the idea is like, is it going to replace religion? The answer to that is no. I'm not saying that they're not a threat to like carve out from institutional religion. I just mean it won't replace it because at the center of this needs to be some sort of organizational institutional response. Otherwise, people will be there for a while. Things will get hard or you'll get busy. You'll take it for granted and it'll fall apart. Without institutions and community, there's no longevity. And so these become really vital. So whether it's building up something new, strengthening, sustaining, whatever that is, that has to be a part of the work of moving forward. I'm glad to hear you say that because I agree it's absolutely key. I mean, one of the problems you talk about with Gen Z is a overwhelming sense of loneliness. Yeah. And we know for a fact that the place, I think, where loneliness is most dealt with is in our middle institutions, the place where we are most embedded in relationships, where we feel known, cared for, we have a sense of belonging, a sense of ownership. That happens not by being being involved with federal politics on Twitter, that happens by going to my local church, my local PTA or schools for Gen Z where those things are happening. And so I want to ask if institutions are kind of a big nothing burger for Gen Z, what is shaping their political, moral and spiritual outlook? Yeah, it's a really great question. I think a lot of people are trying to figure out. I mean, what we've seen so far is that it's their peers, and that's terrifying. <laughs> you know, it's like the very definition almost, the metaphorical definition of the blind leading the blind. What I think gives me a lot of hope about Gen Z is that they know this. They know it's not good enough. We ask a number of questions, but a paired set of questions in this regard, which is, who do you turn to when you're facing uncertainty or you don't know what to do? And number one answer is their peers. Second answer is their parents. By the way, parents still remain the most influential component of a young person's faith and spiritual lives. Always has been true, still true today. But religious institutions and leaders, only 16% of our respondents said that, which is the same number, by the way, who said nothing. When I'm facing uncertainty, I turn to nobody. That's the same number as said they turn to their religious institutions. But then the second of those paired questions that we ask is, okay, that's who you do turn to. Who would you like to be in relationship with? Like, who could help you? And there we get all these answers about trusted adults and the components of a good adult relationship. What does it look like in their lives, et cetera, et cetera. And then what emerges is this understanding that, yeah, they're going to turn to each other in the absence of alternatives because what they see is that those trusted adults are not showing up in their lives, which is a real conundrum for us, a black box in some ways, because I mean, last year I gave nearly 60 talks and we're on pace to do that again this year. And we're in communication with people constantly as a national research firm. All the adults are well-intentioned. They want nothing more than to be a trusted resource for young people, right? Like that is what they're working their whole lives to do. And yet young people are like saying, I wish I had a trusted adult in my life. Basically a third of young people say they have one or fewer trusted adult in their life they could turn to. And that includes their parents. <laughs> That's a really sad statistic. I know at our church, you know, we have a fairly large ministry to kids who are middle school age and high school age, and we're taking you know five, 600 kids off to camp every summer. And I think it's because our leaders get this one thing really, really well, which is that they have a knack for putting these middle schoolers and high schoolers, not always in relationship 
relationships to full-grown adults. I don't know if that's the right word. It's often with college students or younger people in their 20s. So those are for sure adults. It's not, you know, people in their 30s and 40s with kids. Emerging adults. Yeah, emerging adults, whatever term you want to use sociologically. But that really is a secret sauce for shaping lives and helping those Gen Z teenagers feel welcome and a part of the church. You know, the thing I feel cognitive dissonance with is when you say, hey, their peers are shaping them, that suggests that they and their peers exist in some sort of generational vacuum. I mean, something from the outside (laughs) shaping this generation. It's not just this internal dialogue that's happening. That's the thing I kind of want to know. I mean, yes, they're peers, but there has to be other stuff. I mean, is it media diet? Is it the internet? Is it, what is it? I actually think you might be onto something here that, in fact, there isn't anything else right now. Again, adults really matter. It's just the preponderance of communication now, which I'll let me back up and say, very clearly, we know from lots of developmental psychology and other things that as young people age, they get into their teenage years, their peers start to take on more importance. I think what we're in, though, is an age where peers have taken on a greater importance than ever before. And in part, it's because adults are largely absent from their online spaces where you know young people spend a tremendous amount of time online and on social media each day. And, and these are essentially like unmonitored spaces by their parents and the adults in their lives. Interesting. Yeah. And there's always been unmonitored space and it's really good for development and growth. You know, like teenagers have gotten cars and believe me, the like hand wringing about teenagers getting cars and cell phones, even their own phone lines. When I was a kid, the hand wringing around that was pretty significant as well. I think social media is different in some pretty crucial ways that we can talk about, but that is the unmonitored space. There's more of it than ever before. And it's almost all peers leading other peers or very transactional people who care nothing about your best interests whatsoever. They're not malicious, most of them, but they are not intrinsically out for your best interests either. They're trying to get followers and sell ad space. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. I think this conversation connects with something else, and I promise I'll make the loop (laughs) clear. But I saw a study recently, and I don't know if this is right, you can correct it, that 
about 25% of Gen Z self-identify as LGBTQ. Now, some people say that's because this is the first generation to feel freed enough to be honest, to say, hey, this is who I am and I don't feel the need to hide it. But others have looked into the data and said, hey, it actually looks like the B and the Q in that bunch covers a lot of ground. And the sexual behavior of Gen Z is actually a little more cis and heteronormative than not. And so they're saying, hey, is there something about an identity that we want to have that's driving these numbers? So I'm just curious, I mean, what do you say about this information? Yeah, it's stunning. So a couple of things have come out in the last year from Gallup and Pew. It puts that number as somewhere in between 20 to 25% of young people who are identifying as LGBTQ and maybe plus, depending on who's asking a question. And the percentage of people who in the country who identify as trans doubled in the last, what, two or three years or something. Now, doubled from, you know, like 0.7% to 1.4% or something. I think those might actually be the numbers. Like, it's not a tremendous percentage of people. But it's big enough that if you ask Americans now, do you know somebody who prefers they, them pronouns or who identifies as trans? That's a pretty significant portion of the population. I don't think it's quite half, but it's up there. I don't have a firm answer to your question. I do think it's really important to differentiate between gender identity and sexuality. Look, I know that you've probably got a lot of listeners who want to make the claim that those are or should be rather one and the same that your gender determines your sexual identity and sexual behavior. Sociologically, though, that is not how the world actually operates. Those two things operate independently of one another in reality. That is not a value claim. That is just us looking at the world and reporting the data back. Well, and lots of people point this out philosophically as well, that the LGBT are <laughs> philosophically, there's some things that become rather incomprehensible in the bunch. And you're just saying sociologically, not a values claim, but sociologically, that's also true. Yes, we know people identify as more than one gender, and we know that their gender does not determine their sexual behavior. Those numbers have gone up. My guess, if I were betting, is that it's probably going to renorm significantly higher than what it has been in the past because there has been so much stigma and, in fact, significant backlash both internally for your own sense of who you are, but also consequences to pay externally. And so it's hard to believe that that traditional number of 10 to 12 percent that we're going to return to that. 10 to 12 percent. I want to go back to that number because I haven't heard that. You know, the numbers I always heard, you know, when you're talking about transgender identity, for example, are in the 1% or under range, generally speaking. And I always kind of hear the 3 to 5% range for the population that is gay or lesbian. But you just said 10%. So I just want to drill down on that. What are we talking about? So in that biggest umbrella category of LGBTQ+, if we're looking at somewhere in the high single digits, low double digits, depending on who's asking the question, under what circumstances, I mean, there's just so much stigma around people feeling safe enough to answer an anonymous questionnaire, honestly. These are difficult and tricky things. And I mean safe psychologically to admit to themselves often, but also not trusting where this data is going to go and that it's not being tracked because, again, there are real ramifications for employment, marriage, legal benefits, all kinds of things. So wherever you peg that number, what are we talking about? Double or triple increase to where we're at with Gen Z. I suspect it's going to norm down a little bit. But like, it's not a firm bet on my side. Like, I would not be surprised if it goes up. Interesting. Yeah. So Bill Maher, you know, he's an atheist. He's yeah. pro-trans people. He's pro-gay, pro-lesbian. He's so far from someone who's on a values level going to say, oh, I think that your lifestyle choices, decisions, whatever else is something I want to go against. But he had this great bit on his show where he was looking at the statistical increase of all of these numbers. And he was showing how it was doubling, you know, every decade. And then he ends the joke by saying, at this rate, in 30 years, we're all going to be LGBTQ. <laughs> 
And it's a funny little bit. But he was making a point. He's saying, hey, when we see this kind of dramatic rise in people's sense of identity and self, it ought to beg a question, is something more than just what I feel inside internally happening? Isn't that a question that we should explore and ask? Now, me personally, I've been really into the philosophy of a guy named Rene Girard, and he talks about mimetic theory. And the basic idea of mimetic theory is that desire doesn't exist inside of you. Desire exists outside of you. We mold our desires based on models. Someone has to show us, this is what I desire. We say, huh, yes, I desire the same thing as well. And that's something I've really been trying to wrestle with with Gen Z when I see these numbers is as someone who's very much so a digital native, if you're on TikTok, if you're on Instagram, if you're looking at some of these most followed accounts by Gen Z people, you will realize, I mean, even to millennials who are a pretty open generation on this stuff, some of it seems pretty out there. And you start to wonder, do we see this dramatic rise in LGBTQ identity because the models that Gen Z is following that are shaping their desires and shaping their sense of self, they're giving them the model. They're saying this is what it means to be a good, whole, full person. The best kind of person is someone like me. And they say, gosh, I want what they have. I want to be LGBTQ. Do you think that plays a role in this? I understand what you're saying. It's hard to imagine a reality for yourself that you have not been presented with in some way. Dare say impossible? (laughs) Not entirely, right? I mean, this is where artists play a really important role. But if we consider sexual identity and sexuality to be as close to fundamental components and expressions of who you are, socialization matters. It is really, really hard for me to imagine anything that I would have been exposed to at a young age that would have made me attracted to other men. It's just not who I am. At the same time, I think that there's been some really good work done around people explaining that same dynamic at play For people who identify as LGBTQ+, that is not to obscure the fact that being a teenager is in part about exploration and trying to figure things out. But if you're asking me if I think that like being presented with a constant stream of LGBTQ plus affirming images on TikTok can make you sexually attracted to somebody else, I think the answer to that is no, not in any enduring way. Yeah, I think I'm getting more into the B and Q categories here. And that was my point when people drill down. They say, hey, the actual sexual practices don't look very B and Q, but that's a desirable identity category. And a lot of that 25% falls into those two lumps. And it's actually interesting hearing you say like, hey, I can't imagine someone shaping or changing my desires like this. And again, like there's part of me that wonders for people in your generation, my generation, I did not have models like that out there. I mean, even though I'm only 35, I mean, the simple reality was when I was in high school, to be gay for sure was taboo. And it was for sure looked down upon. You know, there was lots of stereotypes. And one of the things that our generation, I think really kind of promoted that changed, you know, the gay rights agenda in general was this idea that you are born a certain way. And it's fascinating to watch. I mean, especially in kind of the fallout from Obergefell v. Hodges, this sense in which now you're seeing the progressive movement actually move away from that and say, well, you know, Alfred, Kinsey told us sexuality happens on a scale. You know, if you're a gay man and you're not attracted to a trans man, you might be a transphobe. Like these senses that actually sexual identity and sexual orientation, these things are a lot more fluid than we said. I'm not even asking you to weigh in because I don't want to make you say controversial things. I just wonder if there's more to be said here about mimetic desire, that we get models and that there's something happening to Gen Z and the models that we're getting that we at least ought to talk about. Let me ask you a slightly different question. Ryan Burge, we had him on the show and after the show, him and I got into this fun little debate. And he was saying to me that, look, if churches don't change their sex ethic, 
they don't change their view on LGBTQ, then you're going to lose Gen Z. They simply will not come to your church. You've lost, you know? And he wasn't trying to make any statement other than even a sociological statement. You're just going to lose. I'm just curious. I mean, what would you say to that? Well, first of all, not every church needs to change to align with how Gen Z feels about this. I mean, Gen Z is overwhelmingly pro-LGBTQ plus and affirming, but lots of denominations, lots of churches are in line with that. So the issue isn't that the church as a monolith needs to change. And I think that there's a lot of room in the religious landscape for people to adopt different perspectives. I would say more than lining up with their own beliefs, what we find from Gen Z in the research is that they really don't want you to be inauthentic. So they can have conversations and be in relationship with people that they disagree with. But I think what they often get on this issue from non-affirming congregations is that it's the congregations and the adults in those spaces that will not be in relationship with Gen Z. They won't do it. Like their expectations for a 16-year-old is way out of line with what a teenager does. I mean, the only reason to get really up in arms about what teenagers do is if you temporarily get amnesia and forget that all of teenagerness is exploration <laughs> and experimentation. I mean, if you are the person who married your middle school sweetheart and still listens to the same music that you did when you were in high school and you know, like your diet is the same as it was when you were 15, well, okay. But for most of us, it's just not true. Everything about what we were when we were teenagers is, it's not that it wasn't informative or important. It's just that it's not the same as it was now. What I think does matter, and maybe if we can sort of scale back the extremes of that statement a little bit, is that if we've got 20 to 25% of Gen Z identifying as LGBTQ+, our own study about the values of Gen Z said that inclusion is the most important thing to them. Um, what that means is that we've got now basically an entire generation of allies, and that's who you're going to lose. The unwillingness to engage doesn't mean compromise, but to engage in a conversation, to be curious, you know, that old Einstein quote, be curious, not judgmental, to have any genuine interest in what's going on in a teenager's life. That's what makes this entire generation of allies say, you don't actually care about me. You care about me supporting your institution. And so it's a transactional relationship at best, but you're not fundamentally interested in who I am. And that's where we see not just religious institutions, but institutions of all kinds losing ground like crazy. Yeah, that is key. I mean, no one wants a transactional relationship. We want transformational relationships. That's what we're all looking for. And it's fascinating to hear you say that. And I think it's a huge challenge to churches that hold to a traditional conservative sex ethic to say this, look, if you want to reach Gen Z, you are going to have to figure out how to have LGBTQ kids in the room and welcomed and cared for and able to go to camp and able to be in your spaces. And if they're not in the room right now, there's a good chance that you're headed down a wrong path. And I wouldn't say wrong path. Again, I want to remove the value. Like it's not a wrong path. It's one that you need to be comfortable with understanding that you might lose an entire generation. Yeah, I'll put the value statement on it. <laughs> sure, that's fine. But I think there's a way to have this conversation really productively without people sort of pigeonholing me or the research we do into like, oh, well, you're just a pro LGBTQ. I'm not. I mean, not in this role that we're playing right here. I mean, but the point is like, if you can't even have them in the room to have a conversation, it's not just that you'll lose that 20 to 25% who identify that way. You will lose all of their friends because their friends will not be able to credibly show back up to their friends and say, this is a thing I'm a part of. This is a place that I went to. These are people that I hang out with. 
But this is where, again, I'll make the value statement. I want to challenge parents because we face this all the time when we have a parent that says, oh, I don't want my kid to be in a small group with that LGBT person, or I don't want them to go to camp and share a cabin with that LGBT person, or I feel uncomfortable with yada, yada, yada. And I want to look at them and say, well, let's just pause. I mean, one, do you really think that would be Jesus's orientation towards this person? You know, the guy who says, hey, you with the first sin, throw the first stone, you know, you do that. That was just not his orientation in general. And what you just said is also true, which is if we want to reach people who are far from God, and you already made a great point, which is we aren't bringing them back to church, we are bringing them to church, we have to meet people where they're at. Even if you have disagreements with their life, their choices, their decisions, their identity, the relationship has to be there to transform. They're not going to believe and then belong. They're going to belong and then believe. And if we get those two things out of order, it's a tremendous problem. So I'll make the value statement and try to encourage people to say, hey, you should do it. Sure. No, that's totally fair. In fact, in some earlier research that I was doing when I was a professor before coming over to Springtide Research Institute, I wrote this book called Church Refugees about why people keep their faith but leave the church. And one of the chapters is about these kinds of issues. And this person told me, why does this have to be the first conversation? Why can't we get everything else in the New Testament right first and then talk about sex? (laughs) That quote has rumbled around in my head now for almost a decade because I think there's so much ground to be gained on things that there is agreement and there is space to have conversation. And like, this doesn't need to be, in my opinion, I don't think this needs to be the first conversation. Again, they don't want you to be disingenuous and inauthentic. You can't hide who you are. If they ask, you got to answer But I think you can answer from a place, even if you think that your answer is not going to be one that they support personally, that you can answer from a place of love and kindness and frankly, not judgmentally, but it takes work. The easy default answer is not to be patient and listen to what they care about. I totally agree. I had a friend who used to say, don't wake the sleeping dragons. And that's been my motto of ministry, despite doing a podcast like this, where we talk to all the sleeping dragons. But <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so, so maybe it's not my motto anymore. But I agree that if that's your leadoff conversation, I mean, I think it's a little bit out of touch with where people are at. But I think more importantly, I love what you just said about let's stop talking about their orientation. Let's talk about our own orientation and our own orientation. I do think, according to Jesus, is to be non-judgmental, is to embrace people who just like you have all kinds of I mean, one of the things I love to say to heterosexual people is, hey, you're obsessed with this person's sexual orientation, but you're married. Have you ever been attracted to someone of the opposite sex that's not your wife? Oh, yeah. And I go, so you know you have a polygamist orientation. Let's just be really clear here. (laughs) You are oriented towards polygamy. Like, what? I am. I go, I know. Isn't that wild? So if you can be in the room, can't they be in the room? Can't we all admit that we're coming to this with lots of desires that we're trying to sort out in the Lord's presence? And that's a good thing. And we'll sort it out together (laughs) along the the way. I want to move to one other that's kind of related topic, which is I'm curious whether you would describe Gen Z as a culturally progressive or conservative generation, because I have this kind of weird theory that I want to run past you that might be totally off base, but I just want to start with that question. I mean, do you think they're culturally progressive or conservative or those terms just off the map? The jury is still out on that question. What seems to be emerging is that they're very issues oriented. So when we ask these questions of Gen Z about what they cared about, we asked, you know, things about like gun rights and immigration reform and the environment and blah, blah, blah. But we felt like it was disingenuous to try and nail down a 15, 16, 17 year old in terms of like which political agenda that supports. <laughs> Package deal ethics. Yeah. What we find though, is that inside of those categories, tremendous support for lots of individual issues. Now it doesn't mean that they are pro gun rights restrictions or reforms. It doesn't mean that they're anti-abortion or pro-abortion. I mean, nobody's pro-abortion, I don't think. Some people are pro-abortion rights. But you know what I'm saying? Like, they care deeply about these issues. Within them, there's room for a range of political positions. 
but they don't care about parties. I think that's thrilling. I actually, that's spectacularly good news because parties have become so polarized and it drives the tribalism. It goes back to the mimetic desire thing. If your only model for political engagement is like AOC and Donald Trump, I mean, best of luck, but you're not going to end up in an emotionally healthy place. No. And in fact, they tell us that, by the way, they tell us that part of what turns them off from parties is watching the adults in their lives not speak well, you know, and these are very homogenous conversations, right? So it's usually conservatives bashing liberals or liberals bashing conservatives, but they're doing it in the presence of young people. And that has been a massive turnoff for teenagers. They hate it. They don't want anything to do with it one way or the other. I love that. See, when I was a young millennial, people love to bash on millennials. So one of my goals with Gen Z is to be the exact opposite. And I just have to say, I mean, 90% of what you said makes me so excited about Gen Z. They're builders. They're kind of repulsed by tribalism and treating people with that kind of vitriol and outrage. I mean, wow. I mean, that is hugely good news, I think, for the future of our society. And one of the questions I do have, and I'm curious to see if Gen Z ends up defining themselves a little bit against millennials and becoming a slightly more conservative generation, in part because maybe they've experienced the excess of identity politics. You know, there is this reactiveness to what happened to me and was that good and do I agree with it now? So I'm be really curious. I mean, I know we can't predict the future, but I'm going to be curious to see what the kind of political leanings are of this generation in 10, 20 years. Well, behaviorally, they're already continuing a trend that was set in place by younger millennials and then like really accelerated by COVID, meaning that like they take longer to leave the house. They take longer to graduate. They engage in less premarital sex. They engage in less risky behavior. And we can continue to go on and on. They're just less destructive to their bodies in general. I mean, that's a normal part of being a teenager is a certain amount of that, but they're doing it less than other generations have. And so I think we start to see behaviorally, at least, that there is this sort of, okay, this dialing it back a little bit, maybe from the most recent generations that they've come out of. So one last question. We started talking about institutions and the need to have these institutions because it's the place where thick, you know, web relationships yeah. happen. And you go back through history and you begin to discover this is actually a pretty uniquely American phenomenon. You know, de Tocqueville comes here and yeah. says, wow, these people don't need a state to organize them. They self-organize into these groups for, you know, all kinds of political and social action. And so my question with Gen Z is, if they're builders, how do you think they're going to change our institutions? What's the future of institutions in Gen Z's hands? It's a great question. I mean, you said it out loud earlier. It's the oldest lesson in my field. I talk about it in almost every talk that I give, that belonging actually precedes believing. We can make short-term gains by putting belief first. And like, I was a camp counselor when I was in college. I know how that works. Like, you get them on a high. I mean, I was doing literal and metaphorical mountaintop experiences because the camp was on a mountain. <laughs> But I could tell when they showed up, right? Like where my work was really going to make a difference because they rolled off of that bus laughing with each other and they can't keep their hands off of one another in a good way, like pushing and, you know, horseplay and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, okay, they're walking into and then back out of this with a community. The stuff we do this week might really matter. And if they show up with heads down, headphones on, hats pulled low, I was just like, maybe we can make some forward progress here, but I just don't know that's going to be very durable. And I think that's largely the impact that they're going to have in that little microcosm of my camp experience, taking it out to this big lesson from sociology that for long-term commitment, belonging has to come first. That's the reshape that we're going to see on institutions. Look, everybody should read our research. You know, I wish everybody would understand this, but I'm realistic enough to know that Mostly what's going to happen is that this is going to be some sort of survival of the fittest where the organizations and institutions that figure that out one way or another through trial and error, experimentation, reading our stuff, whatever, when they get it, that belonging has to come first, they'll be reshaped in radical ways around relationships. 
And it's going to change the way we do politics. It's going to change the way that we engage with each other in religious spaces. It's going to lengthen our timelines for what we consider to be progress and faith development in radical ways. Like the idea of fitting a confirmation class into one calendar school year is like out the window when you start really rethinking your ministries in that way, just to give one small example. And so the ones that don't figure that out, the ones that continue to chase these short-term gains around belief first, like sign on to the statement of faith, like you have to agree to this if you're going to be here. This is our party's platform. If you want to be considered a Republican, Democrat, et cetera, they might win an election cycle, but they're not going to win the generation. That's great. Uh, Josh, where can people follow your work? Yeah, thanks. We are springtideresearch.org. You can see all of our stuff there. We do a lot of work to try and raise money to make as much of it free and low cost as possible. So you can see everything that we're working on. We've got a big series out right now about mental health and specifically how to create mental health friendly organizations by centering connection with something bigger than yourself. God, the sacred, the divine, it can be used in a lot of contexts. So we had a report for educators that came out in the spring. Every fall, we do the state of religion and young people about what we've learned that year about young people's religious lives. And that'll focus on mental health for faith leaders and then parents and employers early next year. So that's what we've got going on and what's coming up. That's great. Well, I hope everybody goes and checks out your work, listens to the podcast that you're on. I've been listening to, I think, everything you've done because I found it so fascinating (laughs) and interesting. Thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Yeah, it was really super. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.